Well, today we finish our series on the big questions of life. Uh, remember, we've always built this as the least you should know about the Christian life. If you want to get your GED in the Bible, this is what you just have to know. And this is the end uh, of the series. And so naturally, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the end times, the last things in Scripture. And all of these things are really important. Now we're going to do a quick recap of these 33 questions that have come up. Just to remind you where we've been. We started with this idea, do I even really want to be a Christian or do I want to still be a Christian because everybody is deconverting these days? So do I even really want to be a Christian? We asked, is there a God? Why am I here? And why is the whole world here? And did Jesus' resurrection really happen? And is the biblical faith, the Bible itself, uniquely true and awe-inspiring? And does the Christian faith bring maximum happiness to the world and to me? And is everlasting hell really the destiny for non-Christians? Why? And then we talk about general spirituality. What is the least a person must do in order to be a Christian in this age of grace? And of course, it's just believe, not do at all. But what is the meaning of being in Christ? Such a biblical idea, an important biblical term. And how can I become a better person, a spiritual person? That is truly good and emotionally well and useful for God in this world. And what are the essentials of emotional wellness? And we asked, what do I do? In matters about which the New Testament is silent. I I don't know how to live. What do I do if the Bible doesn't say? And are some people better than others? I mean, are there really good people and bad people? And I should associate with good people and try not to associate very much with bad people. Do we even use that language? And what's the importance of prayer in my life? Do all my prayers really come to pass? And is the church important to God? Is it essential for my life to be involved with the family of God? Is there really a devil and are there demons? And how might that be affecting my life? And what exactly is success in life? How do I know if I have been successful, really? And how should I arrange the priorities of my life? And on the question of relating to others, which is such an important biblical question, are all humans in this world infinitely precious, regardless of race and IQ and ability and beauty? Should I love and trust all the people around me? Should I? Should there be any limits at all placed upon my servitude and love for others? Any limits? What does it look like for grace and truth to be combined in one personality? And is it ever right to fight ever? Can I ever fight? On the Christian lifestyle, we talked about, is the biblical ethic of family essential for my life? You know, on sex reserved for marriage, homosexuality, must I obey the Bible on these things? Is a biblical ethic of work essential for my life? Do I have to be a hard worker? What is the true value of money in my life? What is money really good for? And how should I interact with my government? And how should I interact with my culture, science, art, entertainment, trends, wokeness? How should I interact? And should I speak about the gospel often and with intensity, my gospel witness? And then just some important academic details, things that come up all the time about the Bible and the Christian life. Are human beings actually just prisoners of fate? And why must believers experience so much suffering? And do miracles happen on demand? Does the Jewish race have a special attachment to God, and does that affect my life? That was last week. And today, what will the end of the world be like? These are 33 really important questions. What is the end of the world really going to be like? Well... 
there are five striking elements that you run into when you're reading the description that the Bible gives about the end time. So here are the big five. These stand out. Number one, you see that there's going to be this dramatic, sudden catching away of believers to meet the Lord in the air. That's big. And you also see this really stands out, that there are going to be extreme sufferings that immediately precede the return of Jesus. And another thing that really stands out is that there's going to be peace on earth once Jesus returns. And another thing that really is prominent is the three-part judgment of God. Oh, the judgment of humanity. That's big. It comes up all the time. And then lastly, the renovation. This really stands out that there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth that's going to be renovated. And that's going to be really something as we get ready to set the stage for all of eternity. So here's what we start with. The first thing that really stands out is that there's going to be this dramatic, sudden meeting of Christ with his church. The members of the church who have already deceased and the members of the church that are still living. And there's going to be this dramatic meeting of Christ with his church in the air, not here on the ground, in the air. And it stops there, in the air. That's big. You see this in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, see, they've deceased. They're, They're Christians, they're members of the church, but they're gone. They left us, they died. Even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain. We didn't die, and the Lord is coming back, so we're alive. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not go before them which are asleep. So some are alive, some are asleep, dead, all joined together. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. The deceased and the living caught up together in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and we'll ever be with the Lord after that. That's really something that's just dramatic. Really? That's going to happen? Same thing in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Some will be living, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ, some have died. The dead in Christ shall rise, and those who are still living will be changed. All together, meeting the Lord in the air, suddenly, in the blink of an eye, that's dramatic think, why do we have to do that? Well, we call that the rapture. And the rapture is how we get from this on the left-hand side to this on the right-hand side. On the left-hand side, you have the church age, which talks about total equality between Jews and Gentiles. That's the way things are right now. On the right side, you have the end times doctrine. And that's where the Jewish people and the Gentile people are no longer equal. The Jewish people get preferential treatment. And the rapture is what separates those. Without the rapture, you can never just say, well, everybody's equal and everybody's not. We'd all just go crazy with contradictions. But the rapture divides it and makes it all come together. So in Galatians 3.28, that's the way things are now in our church age. There is neither Jew nor Greek. You're all one in Christ Jesus. See, there's no difference. Once again, Colossians 3.1, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision. Everybody's the same. It doesn't matter. That's before the rapture. After the rapture, you notice this, so all Israel shall be saved. It's like, hey, that's not the same. You said we were the same, and this is not the same. The end times is different than this time. The church age is different from the last days. And you need the rapture to divide those two times. In Acts 15:7, the Apostle Peter is talking about when Cornelius, who is Italian, when Cornelius became a Christian. And he says, God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God put no difference between us and them. 
So see, in this current church age, there's no difference. No difference between Jewish people and Gentile people. No difference between us and them. Then the rapture comes, and there is a difference. So you see on the right-hand side, this is uh, all the difference. Not all the difference, some of the differences. The nation uh, the nations, plural, shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. It's like, hey, just because you're Jewish now, that doesn't mean that God is with you anymore than he is with me. I'm not Jewish. But in the end times, it will be special. Like, oh, it's not. Like, there's no difference in the end times. There's no difference now, but there shall be in the end times. In Zechariah uh, 8.23, we read that. And then in Isaiah, for the nation that will not serve you, Oh, there are Gentile nations serving the Jewish people. That's not the same. That's not no difference. For the nation that will not serve you shall perish. Bowing to you, you shall also drink the milk of the Gentiles. Like, oh, well, now the Jewish people definitely have an edge. In Ephesians 3.11, you being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God. That's the way things are now. Then comes the rapture, and notice how everything changes. Once again, from the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 61, And foreigners shall stand and feed your flocks and be your plowmen, but you shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. So the Jewish people have Gentile servants. Like, hey, what gives? We're supposed to be all the same, right? Fellow citizens, no longer strangers, what gives? And then you see, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that they may possess the remnant of the Gentiles. Hey, why are you doing that? It's supposed to be everybody the same, right? But now the Jewish people are governing over the Gentile people. What gives? And then once again in Ezekiel 37, and then the Gentiles shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. Sanctify means set apart and above. Then all the Gentiles are going to know that I set Israel apart and above them. Like, hey, there wasn't supposed to be any difference. What goes on? And the answer is, in the church age, no difference. Rapture separates the two ages. And in the end times, there's definitely a difference. So, when we're reading through the Bible, this prominent thing that there's going to be a catching away of the church, deceased and living, to meet the Lord in the air, not on the ground, in the air, and they never do come to the ground. That happens seven years later. But then we have this other thing that's really prominent in Bible prophecy, and that is the extreme sufferings that immediately precede the return of Jesus to earth. Whenever you read about the Lord Jesus returning to earth, you are also going to read about calamity everywhere. The Bible has this habit of talking about calamity preceding the second coming of Jesus. It's just everywhere. So, for example, in Daniel 7, well, the fourth beast, he's really scary. Some kind of a government thing happening there, which we won't go into. The fourth beast, look what he does. He'll devour the whole earth. See, that's calamity. And he'll tread it down. He'll break it in pieces. Oh, that's very bad. And then the same makes war with the saints and wins against them. Oh, calamity. Very bad. Until the Ancient of Days comes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came. There it is. The coming of Jesus. Calamity, calamity, calamity. And then, pow, the return of Jesus. He comes with the clouds of heaven. There was given him dominion, glory, kingdom, a people, nations, languages, that they all should serve him. And his dominion and his kingdom are everlasting. See, calamity, calamity, pow, the return of Jesus. It's all fixed. Zechariah, same thing. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. See, calamity, very bad. And the city should be taken and the houses rifled. People are trashing the houses. 
The women ravished, we say raped. And half the city goes into captivity. Oh, that's bad. Then the Lord shall go forth and fight. That's it. Calamity, calamity. And then the Lord comes. And he fights against all the bad guys. And his feet shall stand that day on the Mount of Olives. Shall be in that day. Living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. You see, terrible things, calamity. And then the return of Jesus. Always extreme suffering. And then the return of Jesus. In Matthew 24, the Olivet Discord. All of that discourse, famines, diseases, earthquakes, calamity. All these are the beginning of sorrows, trouble, lots of trouble. And all of those are just the beginnings of troubles. It gets worse. And they'll kill you. That's bad. Let them that are in Judea flee to the mountains. Run. Calamity. Bad things. For then there will be great tribulation. By the way, just since we have a little baby boom going on here at church, um, you might just notice that in the Olivet Discourse, it's all about pregnancy. The beginning of sorrows, that's what they call the New Testament days birth pangs. The beginning of sorrows. And then great tribulation, great tribulation, that's a transition time. So you say, oh yeah, birth pangs, calamity, calamity. And then there's great tribulation. And this tribulation, great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be the worst calamity the world has ever seen. And the sun will be darkened. The moon shall not give her light. The stars fall from heaven. And all the tribes of the earth mourn when they see the Son of Man coming. See, there it is. Extreme suffering, the coming of Jesus. Always the same in Scripture, right? First Thessalonians 5, 2. Yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes. As a thief in the night, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. That's calamity, extreme suffering. Destruction. And travail come upon them as upon a woman with child. Same as Matthew 24, right? The pregnancy illustration. And so it comes that the Lord comes and there is trouble preceding. One more time, Revelation chapters 15 and 16 together. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. Plagues, ooh, that's trouble. Having the seven last plagues in them has filled the wrath of God. I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways, pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Extreme suffering. In verse 15, behold, I come as a thief. Suffering and coming of Jesus. Then in verse 16, he gathered them together into a place in the Hebrew tongue called Armageddon. You know what that is. Extreme suffering and the return of Christ and everything is made right. All right. So there are five key elements, right? We talked about the dramatic catching away of all the church, deceased and living, to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds. And we talked about the extreme hardship everywhere in Scripture, the extreme hardship that comes right before the Lord returns to this earth with His feet on the earth. The third outstanding thing in the description of the end times is the peace on earth that comes as a result of the return of Jesus. This is actually the most talked about element of the end times as it's described In the Bible, this one is really a standout. Paradise-like conditions all over the world once Jesus returns. And this is featured in Bible prophecy. Jesus himself mentioned it in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If we didn't have all of this background about what the Lord was doing with the wonderful earth experiment, we might say, I don't want to inherit the earth. I want to inherit heaven. The last thing I want is this mess. But no, 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 you don't understand. The earth is going to be fixed. 
it's going to be turned into a paradise. And so Jesus was telling his end times, uh, his prospective end times audience, you know, if you're meek, you're going to inherit the earth. It's going to be wonderful here, like paradise. And in the Lord's Prayer, also Sermon on the Mount, he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. We want your kingdom, your happiness to come here to earth. Thy kingdom come to earth. That's what we want. And so that's a, a major feature when you're reading about the descriptions of the Bible about the end times. In Messiah's golden age, here's the way it looks. Mortal people, just like you and I, mortal people are going to be still living here on earth. They're going to marry. They're going to have children. They're going to work and they're going to play in paradise conditions. And here's a sampling of what that's like when you're reading the Old Testament. Isaiah 35, 10 says, after Jesus returns, sorrow and sighing shall flee away and they shall build the waste cities and also make gardens. And of course, that's not in heaven, right? That only makes sense on earth. Uh, There are no wasted cities in heaven. This is earth. So they're going to build the waste cities and also make gardens Micah says, and they'll sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Imagine sitting in the shade, drinking lemonade. There's no worries. After Jesus comes back in what we call the millennium, it's a thousand years of paradise-like conditions. Zechariah 8.5 says, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Isn't that great? Sitting in the shade, drinking lemonade. The children playing in the streets. What could be better than that? Isaiah eleven six. the wolf also should dwell with the lamb. And by the way, and the Bible says, and a little child shall lead them. Here, wolf, or here, lion, put a little string. Come with me. And a little child shall lead them. How wonderful. Teresa says that she would trade New Jerusalem for this. She loves animals. And the thought of uh, tying a string on a lion and leading him around just sounds wonderful to her. And uh, so, hi, honey. She's watching online today. Um, the wolf also should dwell with the lamb. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And they won't learn war anymore. Uh, we have this thing the military guys go to sometimes called the war college. There won't be a war college. And there won't even be any need for weapons. Uh, you can turn those into shovels and rakes. We don't need them. All right, so the peace on earth that comes when Jesus returns to earth for a thousand years, what we call the millennium, that's just wonderful. It's an outstanding feature. It's a prominent feature when you're reading about the end times. That brings us to number four. This is the three-part judgment of the human race. And, of course, this is everywhere talked about in Scripture as well when you're dealing with the end times. There are separate categories of people who are judged back-to-back as soon as Jesus arrives here on earth. Now remember, this is not the same as meeting his church in the air. This time we're talking about when he comes all the way down, not just the air, all the way down and puts his feet on earth and lives here for a thousand years. The first category that is uh, that we are going to talk about is the church judgment. We sometimes call this the judgment seat of Christ. And it's convened by Jesus to include a performance evaluation for church age believers. And this is, if you are a believer today, this is what you are looking forward to in the not-too-distant future. We who believe in the gospel have already been made citizens of heaven. You understand, our citizenship is in heaven, the Apostle Paul says, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are already citizens of heaven. Our sins are already washed away. And we are saved. Uh, Past tense, according to his mercy, he saved us Case closed. There's no question 
about whether you who believe the gospel are going to be judged and sentenced to hell. That will never happen. But there's a question of how you have performed for the Lord Jesus since you became a Christian. And that's what this judgment is all about. Not judging to see who goes to hell, but judging to see who gets rewarded, what rank we shall occupy. And there is also a prospect of shame for the Christians who have defected from the faith or who have not served the Lord well. Here's what this sounds like in Scripture for the church judgment. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive for the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. But why do you judge your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. They who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown in the Olympics, but we're doing it to obtain an incorruptible crown in heaven forever. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. I force myself to do things I don't really feel like doing sometimes, lest by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be unapproved. You hear that? The accountability, uh, rewards, the prospect of crowns. Same thing in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord shall give me, and not to me only but to all them also who love his appearing. Every man's work shall be made apparent and the fire shall test every man's work of what kind it is. If any man's work remains, you shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he'll suffer a loss, but he himself shall be saved. Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. So that's what this rewards judgment sounds like for the church we're talking here about reward we're talking about rank in the family of god and we're even talking about shame so the apostle john says in first john three that we must be careful not to be ashamed before him at his coming because this is a real prospect all right there's another category besides the church judgment there's this uh category in the judgment seat of christ called the sheep and goats judgment And this is convened by Jesus to determine which mortal Gentile uh, survivors of the tribulation get to occupy the millennial kingdom. So remember, not everybody in all this hardship right before Jesus returns to earth, not everybody's going to die. A lot of people survive. A lot of Jewish people survive and a lot, a lot of Gentile people survive. And now they have to be judged. And they're just mortal people like you and I today. They're not glorified. They're just normal people in their normal bodies. And the question is, do you get to occupy the millennial kingdom of Jesus, the paradise-like earth, or do you have to go to hell? And those are the two options. So, and bear in mind, we learn from Romans 11.26, all Israel shall be saved. That's 926, actually. All Israel shall be saved. And so this is not a judgment for Jewish people. This is a judgment for Gentile people to see if they get to come into the millennial kingdom or if they have to go in hell. And this is the day Jesus arrives here on earth. That's when all of this begins. Here's what it sounds like in Matthew 25, 31 and following. The Son of Man shall come, not in the clouds, all the way to earth. He will come to earth. The Son of Man shall come 
Then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations. By the way, the term nations means Gentile nations, not the Jewish nation. All the Gentile nations gathered before him. Then the king shall say to them on his right hand, Come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the paradise-like kingdom that Jesus sets up on earth when he returns. Verse 40, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brothers, those are the Jewish brothers. See, all of the nations are gathered before the Lord, and the basis of their judgment is how have they treated Jesus' brothers. The brothers of Jesus are different from the bad guy sheep and their uh, goats, and they're even different from the good guy sheep. You have the sheep, the goats, and the brothers, three different categories. So the question is, have you done good things to one of the least of these, my brethren? Because if you did do this to the Jewish brothers who were so targeted during the tribulation, then you've done it for me. Verse 41, They shall say to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. So you see, as soon as Jesus comes back, there's a judgment. The church judgment is just for rewards and rank in the family. But the sheep and goats judgment includes the goats who actually go to hell at that time. This is the day Jesus returns. It also is talked about in other places in the New Testament. So you see in Matthew 24, 44, Be also ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man comes. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he does not look for him. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he said to him, Well, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. You know, in my millennial kingdom here on earth. Have authority over ten cities. But my enemies who did not wish that I should reign over them, bring them here, slay them before me. After a long time, the Lord of those servants comes. His Lord said to him, You wicked and slothful servant. Take therefore the talent from him and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you see, when Jesus comes back, there's this judgment. Some are going to populate his millennial kingdom, a paradise-like kingdom, for a thousand years. Some will go to hell. We who are believers, church-age believers, we are going to be in our resurrection bodies, right? Because seven years before this, we met the Lord in the air. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. If you didn't die, you're going to be changed at that moment. You're going to be put in your resurrection body in that moment. We shall all be changed. This corruptible shall put on incorruption. This mortal shall put on immortality. We get our resurrection bodies. So in this millennial period, we are the Lord's deputies, governors, social workers, and we're glorified. We're in resurrection bodies. But everybody else is in their mortal bodies just doing things what normal people do. Marrying, having children, working, and playing in a paradise like earth. Well, there's one more final judgment that we have to talk about. So remember, these are bookends for the millennium, bookends for Christ's return. At the beginning, when Jesus first arrives here on earth, there's a judgment, which we've already talked about. Then comes a thousand years of paradise-like conditions, and there has to be one more judgment. So a judgment in the beginning, when Jesus first returns, a judgment a thousand years later, and that's the final one. Then it's over. All right, the last and final judgment will be convened at the conclusion of Jesus' reign. This is the third category that we call this the great white throne judgment. This is the end. It separates uh, everything that went before with the eternal state. And who will be judged here? Well, these will be all the Old Testament period individuals, Gentiles, 
and lost Jews. They're going to be judged. Because remember, we said when Jesus first returned, he gave the church its judgment for reward and rank. And the mortal people who survived the troubles of the tribulation, he judged them. Some are worthy to populate the millennial kingdom and some have to go to hell. But we haven't talked yet about all of the Old Testament individuals who are lost. They have to be judged. And secondly, the church age individuals who are lost, people who didn't believe the gospel, they still have to be judged at the great white throne. And you have the people during the millennium who join in a rebellion against Jesus. They have to be judged at the end of the thousand years. And then you have the children of the millennium who are either born during the millennium. During that thousand years, a lot of children will be born. They have to be judged. Or some might have been there when Jesus first set his feet on earth and had his initial judgment. But they're such little children. They really were before the age of accountability, we say, and they couldn't be judged. So these are all judged now at the great white throne judgment. That's the final. Here's what it sounds like. Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so that's what that sounds like, the last judgment. Well, that just leaves the renovation. The renovation of the universe for eternity. One of the most interesting and outstanding things that you're reading about, so dramatic when you're reading about the end times, is that the universe is going to be renovated to include three heavenly residences, the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. And you will be able to live in and visit these three heavens, if you will, three realms of heaven. And don't forget, besides these three heavenly realms, there is the lake of fire for the lost of all the ages. Here's what it sounds like, the dramatic renovation of planet Earth and all the heavens. I create new heavens and a new earth. The heavens being on fire, that's our current heavens. The heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness resides. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. The earth, the current heavens and the current earth, they shall perish and they shall be changed. In Revelation 21, 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So there you see the new heaven, the new earth, New Jerusalem, three heavenly, wonderful places for you to live in and visit. So what will the end really be like? Here's the conclusion. This one is a little speculative, but um, here's what I strongly suspect is going to happen. A few years from now, under pressure from the anti-Israel lobby in America and internationally, the U.S. will probably cease to underwrite the nation of Israel. When we do that, that will be a little bit like signing a death sentence for Israel, and it will kick off calamitous times in Israel. I suspect that that will happen soon. If you are a believer, the rapture will catch you away into the air at about that time, And the love you feel with the Savior in heaven from that time forward is going to be permanently breathtaking. 
that will be absolutely wonderful. It will be like being in love and being excited about the greatest adventure you've ever imagined, and it will never go away. It will be permanently breathtaking. You'll never get over it. In heaven, approaching the day of Christ's judgment, you know, this is the rewards judgment, approaching the day of Christ's judgment, your one great wish, this will be the most intense desire that you've ever had. Your one great wish will be that Jesus will declare to you his unmixed delight, like thorough delight, unmixed delight in the way that you've lived your life on earth, in the way that you've related to him. You'll want that so badly you'll be able to taste it. You'll want that more than anything you've ever wanted in your whole life. And you're going to face that emotion and that yearning very, very soon. If you have indeed loved the Lord in your lifetime, you have loved the Lord, then you are going to be given an eternal keepsake. The Bible calls these crowns. An eternal keepsake and a token of the Lord's special fondness for you. It never really was about the crowns. It was about the Lord's special fondness for you, the special warmth that the Lord has for you. And you'll be given... A, an eternal rank in the Lord's family that is attended by special privileges of joy. And during Messiah's thousand-year reign, you're going to be officers of his government in your glorified bodies, carrying out his will, almost like angels do for us today. Uh, you are going to be officers in the Lord's kingdom, in his government. And after the millennium, in eternity, you are going to be an honored member of God's family and that honor will be visible those are incorruptible crowns they never go away that honor will be visible and everlasting it's always there so that's why you want to live for Jesus if your love for the Savior in this life was meager or if you defected from the faith in this life then the Lord is going to indicate his disapproval of the way you've lived. This is going to cause you unimaginable shame. Further, during Christ's thousand-year reign, evidently, you will have no honor. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, as Ephesians 4 says it. You have no honor and no duties in Christ's government. And you are going to toggle for 1,000 years, because remember, it is only after the millennium, after the 1,000 years, that all the tears are wiped away for all eternity. So you have 1,000 years of toggling back and forth between breathtaking joy in heaven and shame for abusing the Lord's love while you lived in this world. Then, after the millennium, when all tears are indeed wiped away forever, you only have one emotion, and that will be utter joy. How nice. I mean, that is, what could be better than that? Still, though, your lowliness of rank in God's family will be visible to all and everlasting. That's not to say that you're going to cry about it because there are no more tears. It's just locked in for all eternity. You are not crowned. You are not high-ranking. It doesn't cause you any particular jealousy because there's no more sin of jealousy. There's no competition but you just are what you are everlastingly. After the millennium, in eternity, there will be these three heavenly residences 
for you to live in and to visit. The first one is New Jerusalem, which we talked about. A massive heavenly city that hovers over the earthly Jerusalem, and that seems to be especially loved by church-age believers because it is called the bridal city, and the church is called the bride of Christ. Then there are the new heavens. New heavens, this would be the stars and the planets. Just like Star Trek, we're going to boldly go where no man has gone before. And we get to visit all these wonderful places that the Lord fixes up and renovates and makes beautiful. And they will no longer be uh, forbidding to humans. There will be places for us, evidently, to visit. There will be a new heavens. And uh, we suggest that that will be particularly loved by Gentile people. And it's because they are not part of the Bride of Christ, New Jerusalem. I'm speaking of the Gentile people outside the church age. Uh, They are not the Bride of Christ and have a special attachment to New Jerusalem. And they're also not ethnic Israel, which has a special attachment to the Holy Land and the earth. So the new earth, our own earth renovated into a paradise, especially loved by Jewish people from the Old Testament and millennial ages. So three residences, and I think we will be visiting all of them and probably preferring one of those, uh, depending on our uh, position in God's master plan. Finally, we have to say this. If you will never reach out to Jesus for his free gift of everlasting life, you won't reach out to Jesus for his salvation. Then you will be sentenced at the great white throne judgment to exist forever in the lake of fire. That's true. The lake of fire is the prison of the universe, kept far away from God's happy family. All the unlove that you kept in your heart during this life is now going to flourish everlastingly away from God's grace. So you say, I suppose that the people in hell are all repentant and they just want another chance. No. Evidently, the people in hell have the unlove in their hearts accelerated and escalated. And the only thing that keeps the people in the lake of fire from tormenting others out of selfishness and unlove is that they have their own pain to worry about and they're a little distracted by their own pain. And also, they're kept away from the family of God so that they can't harm anyone. They can't express their unlove toward the family of God because God keeps them isolated away from his dear children. So that's it. We've talked about answering 33 crucial questions. And this is the least you should know about the Christian faith. At least know this. I mean, there are so many other things you could know, but at least know this. And hopefully, um, you'll bear these things in mind. I consider this series that we're finishing one of the most important that I've ever done because I'm very old now, you know, and I've been at this for a really long time. So, not only at this for a really long time, but this has been, you know, my heart's passion for a really long time. And that doesn't mean that I have all the answers, but it means that I have had to face these crucial questions for a really long time as my brothers and sisters come up and say, what about this and what about that? So anyway, I have considered this to be one of the most important series that I've ever done. And uh, I hope that this will be in a book form uh, in a few months and maybe we'll have it as a reference guide. Can we stand and be dismissed with prayer? Father, we know that 
You are wonderful. We know that you have given us a wonderful book in the Bible. And I pray that if somebody here has not yet trusted you as Savior, that they would do that before this day is done, that in the quietness of their own thoughts, they would say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I want your rescue. I do not want to be in the lake of fire with my unloving heart for all eternity, isolated from your dear children. And Lord, if there's anybody here who's been careless in his Christian walk, I pray that he would have just a glimpse of the yearning that he will feel very soon for your unmixed declaration of delight in how he's lived. I pray that we would never forget that. We would live every day with that in our hearts at the forefront of our minds. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.